Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideIndySports.com on the Rivals Network. The Inside Indy Sports Podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, makers of the best premium socks I've ever owned. And Dead Soxy has another deal for our Inside Indy Sports Podcast listeners. If you want to grab some free team color socks for yourself or check some holiday gifts off your list, this week, our friends over at Dead Soxy are doing a buy one, get one free sale on sock bundles. That means if you buy an eight-pair bundle of any of their premium dress socks, casual socks, or no-show socks, you get a second eight-pair bundle for free. Since you only get one BOGO purchase, you can game the system by completing separate transactions for each BOGO bundle you want. So if you have a whole family of fans, game the system with multiple transactions to cover everyone. Dead Soxy even has other team color options for your pesky in-laws who maybe don't share your allegiances. Head to deadsoxy.com and use code LUCKY at checkout, and you have yourself a free bundle of your favorite new socks to match your purchase. As always, stay Soxy. Notre Dame buried Boston College in the snow on Saturday and is getting ready for a top 15 matchup at USC. The the Irish will be tasked with slowing down the red-hot offense of the Trojans and will certainly need some help from their own offense and doing so for this week's podcast, we're bringing back uh, a repeat guest, our first repeat guest of the season. Uh, our listeners loved hearing from former Notre Dame offensive lineman, Bob Morton so much that we couldn't help, but ask him come back to the show, Bob. Thanks for joining us once again. Hey, Tyler, Eric, good to be back. I had no idea. I was the first repeat guest. That's fantastic. I'm so excited. And we yeah, got lots of compliments and back um, I had one guy said that I should listen to you more. <laughs> no kid. Well, listen, I mean, that guy may not have heard what I said about Quentin Nelson all those years ago, Eric, you, <laughs> you've scrubbed the database from that, but needless to say, I think I told you earlier, like this has been a year of good takes from good old Bob Morton. I've had some bad ones, but this year has been pretty good. So yeah, listen away while they're, while they're on, on, on point, like they are. <laughs> Yeah, well, you can put a repeat podcast guest on your resume the next time you you freshen it up. So it's already done. I mean, I just did it. <laughs> All right. Um, let, let's start with the Boston College game. I guess just first, like, is there anything better than snow football? Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, like, I'll be honest with you, like sixty-five He's degrees is definitely better. I mean, come I'm on, come no, on. Like, listen, like, you got to understand something, right? Like, we're really tough guys but we're also really sensitive. And so when someone hits you in the small of the back and it's 25 degrees out, like, I mean, there's a part of your soul that meets Jesus, right? Like there's, <laughs> there was definitely some fighting between teammates after celebrations in the game. But uh, listen, from the warmth of my own living room, yeah, nothing better than seeing the third quarter go from what looked like a beautiful November day to just a snow apocalypse on the field. Yeah, it was beautiful, but it was really cold, and then the snow came, and then if you were out in the stands, which I wasn't, thankfully, it was it was pretty brutal, but it was a lot of fun to watch. So what what was your takeaway maybe from the Boston College game, your main takeaway from that 44 nothing victory? Yeah, uh, I think it, it, the biggest thing for me was we had an answer for cover zero. Um, you know, watching that second half of that Navy game, I understand that, you know, they have a pretty stout run defense, but they threw that um, everybody at the line of scrimmage and got in, you know, uh, Drew Pine's face so quickly. And we had long developing routes that didn't come open that we just 
we looked ill-prepared for a cover zero look. And so I was really interested to see what we were going to do um, in case Boston College, which we knew they would, was going to bring that. Lo and behold, as he's done several times with a full weeks of prep, you know, Coach Reese really did a great job of moving the pocket some, um, getting Drew out to the tackles where he could have better angles on quick throws, had a lot of those quick throws early to the outside to set the tone and the pace of things and really let the rest of the game come to him. And he caught Boston College enough times that the game was over really before they could put another cover zero look in um, to, to get in in Ten's face. So that was the biggest thing that I was looking for going in. And um, and on the offensive side, the answer was there. Defensively, uh, all all I can say is you know Benjamin Morrison, right? Like that's that's all I have to say um, in terms of what I what I saw coming out of that game. I want to piggyback off of Morrison. Did this, did you have a freshman when during your career at Name? Was there a freshman who really stood out? You're like, wow, this kid is he actually a freshman? Why like? Benjamin Morrison does not play like a freshman in any way. I'm sure I was curious if there's anyone you would compare from your career at Notre Dame as having a really standout freshman season like that and really sort of like, okay, this kid's like sort of playing beyond his years right now. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of crazy to think, you know, of of somebody in that position, that cornerback position. I mean, the best I saw to ever do it was Shane Walton, and I was the freshman watching him as a senior mm-hmm. do that, and he was so young in his football career, having transitioned over from soccer. Um, but, but I'll say this: the one, the one freshman that showed up that I just knew like there was something different about. There were two of them. Um, you know, one is John Carlson, the tight end, and one was Darius Walker. Um, the way, you know, John Carlson just brought a work ethic that you just don't see out of high schoolers very often, and you knew that we were going to utilize him over the next several years, which we of course did. Um, but then, you know, Darius Walker came in and every, every recruiting class has a player that's, you know, got a lot of hype behind him and, and D walk did. Um, but the way he carried himself, the way he ran, he had just a smoothness about what he did that we knew it was just a matter of time before he was going to see the field. And, um, you know, with coaches that didn't play, you know, freshman early, uh, coach Willingham did not do that very often. Um, we got him on the field as quick as we could. Okay, I got two asides before I ask my question. One is, do you work with Darius Walker now? <laughs> I do. He may not. He may listen to this. You know what I mean. So a little props <laughs> to D Walk. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Darius works in development uh, with us. Uh, his region is out on the West Coast, where you know he and his family have kind of planted their roots uh, around LA. So he'll be um, at this game. I'm I'm almost sure of it. Uh, I'll just be watching from uh, from my living room again. Okay, and then. My second weird tangent question before I get into my main thing was I was looking over your recruiting class and I know you guys had a Marcus Freeman in your (laughs) recruiting class. And then Marcus, this Marcus Freeman took a recruiting visit to Notre Dame during your time there. I think he was in the class behind your Marcus Freeman. Um, Do you remember him at all visiting? Do you remember that at all? So I don't I don't remember Coach Freeman uh, visiting. I believe he was 08 where I was 06. I had the red shirt year. So, you know, we might have been offset a year. I think he was on the, the Ohio State team that we would have played in the Fiesta Bowl um, mm-hmm. where we were trying to block, you know, A.J. Hawk, who was making every okay. other play that, uh, that that we could we could start. Um, but, um, yeah, so I don't I don't remember having met him. Uh, truth be told, I mean, they 
they didn't, I wasn't fun enough for, for them to let a whole lot of recruits hang out with me. So I was just the one that would meet the parents and then the, the players would go hang out with other players. And so that was, uh, that was kind of my role. And I fit that really well at the time. Okay. So here's my question. USC, your first four years on campus, those games weren't even close. And then you, or I'm sorry, the first three, then yep. you had, the Bush push year. And then it wasn't close really in 06. Um, I think, I think Tyrone actually was let go in part because of the wideness of that USC victory in 04. I remember sitting with Kevin White uh, a few days before the USC game and him telling me everything's fine. Tyrone's on solid ground. There's no way he's getting fired. And then the decision was made above his head but so i want to ask you about memories of usc series i guess there wouldn't be a lot of great ones other than the bush push game well i mean i would I, so i'd flip it around and say that's the one memory that i rather not talk about you know what okay. i mean like, you know so it but like memories about usc are interesting right like i've got a lot of respect for the guys that i played there there's a guy that played the same year as i did nose tackle cedric ellis uh, probably the one person that I remember on that defense more than anybody else. We just grinded against each other year after year after year. We knew we were going to see each other either in, you know, like week five, six in October, or we were going to see each other Thanksgiving, um, you know, kind of asked about each other's parents. And, and it was just, it was cordial. Like we, we would see the scouting report on each other. Like he knew what I did well and didn't do well. I knew what he did well. He probably had a more well-rounded game than I did. So I was just trying to trick him and make him think we were going right when we were actually going left. Um, but those were the battles that I, I think I liked the most, right? Like I loved going against that competition. Um, I would say whenever I played good competition, sometimes I underperformed. Whenever I played great competition, I always had statistically my best games. And so uh, I always felt like, you know, Cedric and I were going were gonna to kind of go to war together. Um, the Bush push game was interesting. Um, just a few weeks earlier, I'd, I'd hurt uh, my ankle and my knee. And so uh, I was in a rotation kind of moving from center to left guard. I wasn't playing right guard because of the angles that my ankles were at and it didn't work very well for me and uh, was snapping a ball on a series. And uh, all of a sudden I looked at my hand as I was placing it on the ball and, and my ring finger was bent over my pinky finger and I couldn't grab the ball. And so I literally like held my hand up at towards the sideline. They didn't even call timeout. Sullivan, John Sullivan ran on the field. I ran off. They reset the finger, uh, everything like that. And, and I was just kind of in a weird like left guard rotation the rest of the game. But the one memory I have, again, I didn't hang out with players because I wasn't super cool, wasn't a trash talker. But uh, I had my one really good trash talking moment with Frosty Rucker uh, mm -hmm. at USC that game. And uh, he made a comment about all the freckles that are on my skin. <laughs> and I may have insinuated that um, that his mom was really good at counting all of them the night before. <laughs> and it was it was like such this really like like really polite Southern Baptist, like left guard <laughs> saying it to Frosty Rucker that like all the defensive linemen and linebackers from USC like dapped dapped me up and it was hysterical <laughs> like in the timeout because i just came back with something really fast that is awesome uh, yeah that's great um speaking of sort of usc and, and the end of the season I, I mean notre dame always plays out in california the weekend of thanksgiving what is that 
process like? I mean, I think you sort of get used to it by the end of your career, but what is that like sort of spending Thanksgiving with your teammates and then um, traveling out to California? And then sometimes it could be a pretty big game there at the end of the season as well. Yeah. You know, it's, it's definitely different. It's something that you, um, I think they do a pretty good job of preparing us for, I don't know what this team, you know, looks like traveling wise, but we would always travel on Thanksgiving, right? We'd get up, we'd uh, maybe have some kind of walkthrough in the morning. We'd assemble, we would have a semi-formal or team issued gear, you know, kind of uh, early dinner. We'd hop on the flight and we'd head out to California. We'd have all of Friday there, all of Saturday and play in a night game, whether it was at Stanford or USC. I think it's one of the things that, so long as as a player coming in, you know what you're getting into. It's something you can get really excited about. Um, it's weird, right? Like if if you've grown up in a family like I have, that's always visiting family and extended family for Thanksgiving. To not do that, my parents never made it out to California for one of those Thanksgiving Day games, and so um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, but you've got the bonded brothers, right? That you're there with, and it's the last regular season game and so it's kind of a culmination of everything you've worked for so you're really laser focused and locked in okay well let's get in your wheelhouse and let's talk a little bit about Notre Dame's offensive line in this game you know USC has a lot of sacks not as many as Notre Dame does but they have a lot early in the season they were a little bit higher they they force a lot of turnovers how do you see this matchup going with Notre Dame's offensive line and USC's front yeah, you know, I think I think whenever whenever you go good on good, like strength on strength, and I think our offensive line has really shown to be the strength of our offense that we assumed it was going to be. Um, they've really, really gelled into a, a fine unit. When when you go good on good, I feel like this team has responded really well. I mean, to see the games that we've not performed in, it's usually when there's an expectation that we should roll and all of a sudden the game gets close and we get behind and we make one mistake and it costs us the game right towards the end. But when it's been good on good, like this team has shown out, you look at Clemson where that defensive line was, you know, kind of vaunted as they were coming into our game and, and they were silenced, they were bullied and they were beat up. And so I don't think there's a defensive line or a front seven in the country that can go man and man against our offensive line and walk out without being kind of bloodied and bruised. And so I feel really good about that. The pressure on the quarterback is going to be interesting. I don't know too much about their defensive system, but it really depends on how they get their pressure that worries me. If it's going to be, you know, down lineman pressure, I actually feel like our offensive line will handle that relatively well. Um, you know, I think that I've really been happy with how the pass protection has evolved. If they are getting pressure from different looks, different linebackers and bringing, you know, kind of the exotic pressure, I would say I have a little bit of concern, right? I don't know that our offense is structured to really have the hot routes that the Charlie Weiss offense I grew really grew to maturity in uh, allowed, right? So if you blitzed against Charlie Weiss, we were going to get seven yards no matter what. And so the only time it made sense to blitz is when it was, you know, third and 10 or longer because we were going to get the ball in an open field on a quick route from a six, four quarterback to probably a six, three or four receiver. And it just worked all the time. If they're getting different blitz pressures and we don't get the ball out quickly, um, then, then we get into space where I don't feel super comfortable with how our offense is set up. We're going to be running into the teeth of more than we can block. And then our pass game is going to be a little bit, um, 
inconsistent would be the nice word I would say is what I would worry about if we're going to see a lot of different kind of pressure. USC's defense gives up a lot of yards, but they've created a lot of turnovers. That's that's why they've been able to win as many games as they have is that their defense, even though they give up a lot of points, they're able to come up with some some big turnovers to to clinch games and and keep the offense um, their offense on the field. I'm curious, obviously like turnovers like the offensive line don't necessarily doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with whether or not your team creates turnovers maybe protecting the quarterback better would will help that but how does an offense like sort of approach a game when they know the defense is so turnover hungry and has such a reputation for creating turnovers yeah so I think number one is you don't take anything for granted right like I don't care how long it's been since you put the ball on the ground you know practice game since high school doesn't matter to me like if if you're going into contact you've got to make sure you're securing every angle of the ball, right? And so putting the proper two hands on the ball when you're going into contact, these guys are hunting for it. They're swinging for it. They're trying to put their helmet on it. Um, it means that if if you can keep hold of the ball, there's extra yards out there for you to get because they're not as worried about getting you on the ground as they are trying to get the ball. The The one thing I would say, right, is like early in the year, I think we developed a really big fear um, when we saw that, um, you know, uh, Drew Pine, our quarterback, was really getting locked in on on the singular receivers on routes. I mean, we can easily say it was Michael Mayer, right? But I would say there were times he was throwing to others where if you watched where his eyes were, he was looking where he was throwing from the beginning. When you have a hungry defense, that's where turnovers happen. And so even if the passes are protected well, um, that's where I was really nervous after a few games of his that we were going to be able to evolve out of that. I'll say what I have seen from him, um, I've not seen him much on that. I think part of it is how we're using Michael Mayer. Um, one of the things I said before the Clemson game is I really wanted to see us put Michael Mayer and other tight ends in a little bit of motion because a defense has to show you their hand a little bit when you do that. We've done that really, really well. And we've used Michael Mayer to get other individuals open and still Michael Mayer so good that he's going to go ahead and get his, you know, eight to 12 catches for anywhere from 67 to 110 yards and maybe two touchdowns. Like he can still get fed, but we're using him to open others up. And that makes us a lot harder to defend. And so I think if we want to see victory, yeah, we want to be able to run the ball for 175 to 200 plus, but I do think we still need to be able to throw the ball for more than 200 to really keep up with this high power USC offense. Okay. Let me flip, flip it then. And let's look at it from a defensive perspective, defending USC's offense. You know, sometimes I can go back without having to watch a game and just look at the statistics and kind of, see what a team did Oregon State I can't figure out how they made that so close um, because USC ran the ball Caleb Williams had an awful day but he didn't throw any picks Oregon State threw four picks and came within three points of beating them so I'm not sure what they did I think I think hopefully Al Golden watched the film since it's not my <laughs> job to watch it but how would you defend them would you uh would you try to get them in long third and longs and and then bring pressure or you know because their running game even without die isn't horrible I mean Barlow and Jones had pretty good days against UCLA so what would you do 
Yeah, so I think the one thing that concerns me most is actually the zone read. Um, when I when I look at, you know, you're looking at the last home game, you're looking at securing a New Year's Six, you know, bowl specifically for USC. Like, I would expect Caleb Williams to do everything in his power to take their team, you know, to the finish line. And so as much as you want to stop the that first handoff, um, you know, I, I – I'm not Al Golden. I, I love a zone blitz scheme to stop read option, right? I love when your defensive end is just sold out on crashing down and taking that handoff away. And when the quarterback pulls it, you've got, you know, a linebacker scraping over the top who's right there in, in the quarterback's face. Now, we haven't shown a boatload of zone blitzes, and, and I don't think you just rewire your defense to do it. But I do think really selective run blitzes and pressure is how that zone read goes quiet. Um, because if Caleb Williams is pulling it and running for, you know, 65, 85, maybe even 100 yards, it's going to be a long day on third down. And and that's when we struggle. When we can't flip the field, when we can't play our type of ball control game, um, that that's where it feels a little less comfortable to be Irish. Bob, I wanted to zero in on a specific offensive lineman. I, I thought Blake Fisher played maybe his best game of the season against Boston College and uh, and has sort of improved as the season has gone. I'm curious, what's your perspective on, on what you have sort of seen from him as the season has progressed at, at, at Notre Dame's right tackle? Yeah, listen, what, like it's the it's the worst and the best place to be, right? You're opposite from, you know, notably one of the best offensive linemen in the country whose name's being talked about all the time. And, and you're, you know, four positions away – um, and you're you're becoming a, a, a just as solid of a pillar on the other side of the offensive line, right? Um, I think my biggest concern at the beginning of the year when we were seeing a lot of tackles pulling and stuff like that is that, you know, I, I didn't love Blake Fisher in space. I think it's something he can do really, really well. Um, but just with the offense and the the way we were playing at the beginning of the year, I didn't I didn't love it. Um, but seeing him when he when he gets his hands on people, he's winning. And that's all you need from your tackles is um, I I can't tell you how many times you can get a plus plus grade on your grade sheet by blocking the wrong guy. So long as you were decisive and you did it early because your running back can then block somebody, you know, he he can make the correction because you took the guy that was most dangerous. Um, And so the decisiveness across the offensive line, Blake Fisher and to the left has been much improved you know, since week four or five of the year. And, and that's why I think you're seeing, well, that's why our entire offense is, is looking better, specifically our intermediate pass game, that 12 to 20 yard range. Um, You need significant time to throw the ball. And uh, I actually think that's where Drew Pine is, dare I say dangerous when he's got that time and that those longer developing middle of the road crossing routes have been pretty fun to watch come open. Okay, I'm going to ask you an offensive line question, too, just since we have you. What makes Joe Alt special? You know, I I think that um, I played one game of tackle my entire college career, and I I had finished and I'd moved on to the Hula Bowl um, in Honolulu, Hawaii, and they had three centers, four guards, three tackles, and I wasn't looking to play – football uh, after this game and I told the coach just put me at tackle we'll have two lines we'll rotate and I spent every day after both practices 
trying to learn how to play right tackle for this game. And the one thing that was just shocking to me is how much space there is when you get outside of the interior three and you're dealing with guys who are, they, yeah, they're probably faster, but they could be just as strong. They can go inside, outside. They can try and go through you. Um, what makes Joe Alt special is he makes a lot of those defensive ends look like defensive tackles. Like he gets his hands on them and their feet stop and wow. it's over. And if they try and rush outside, he just takes them where they want to go and he doesn't get beat outside. And yet I've not watched him get walked back to the quarterback yet. And um, that's hard to do, man. When you have somebody who lines up wide and decides they're going to put their face mask in their hands in the middle of your chest and just bull rush you back, when they hit him, their feet stop. And all they can hope to do is jump and get their hands on the football. And so he he makes defensive ends look like D tackles when they hit him, and um, their game just slows down entirely. Bob, I've been a sucker for any time Notre Dame puts two running backs on the field at the same time. And this past week, they even were, they had five plays where they ran with three, 31 personnel with three running backs on the field. I'm curious from your perspective, what do you, are you? are you as interested in seeing what Notre Dame's offense can be with that? And why do you think that works so well for Notre Dame's offense? Yeah, well, it works so well for Notre Dame's offense because the beginning of the year, if you said, Hey, who are your top five ball handlers? One is a tight end three are your next, you know, three running backs. And then you'd put a receiver out there, right? Like it's just in terms of who, who do you want to get the ball, you know, into their hands? Um, I, I was begging for a very long time to see seven and three on the field at the same time. I think Logan Diggs presents a lot as a really well-rounded back, maybe the most well-rounded and the, and the highest floor of any of the backs that we have in our backfield this year. And um, there's a consistency that he gives you kind of that three yards, no matter what. And then you've got, you know, Audric Estime who reminds me an awful lot of, of a guy I played with named Rashawn Powers, Neal, um, who uh, was technically listed as a fullback, but was really just a heavier bruiser of a running back and kept finding the end zone. What I love about Audric is um, there doesn't have to be a hole for him to hit the hole. And sometimes you just need somebody to wake up your offensive line. And there's nothing that wakes up an offensive line, like tire tracks up your back when your running back hits you. <laughs> um, and so, and then the last thing is let, let's not forget Chris Tyree's explosiveness is something that we've seen flashes of, and we haven't been able to see it day in and day out, but he's a special talent. And so finding creative ways to get three running backs involved, one might be running up the middle, one's a sweep off the right, one's a jet sweep or a screen out to Tyree, like finding ways to get all these guys involved when they're all on the field, you don't know what to prepare for. Are you going to get a fullback dive with Estime? Are you going to get Logan Diggs running off tackle? Are you going to get the hands uh, of Tyree on the ball? Um, you can't set yourself for any one thing. It takes away tendencies. Um, and so, you know, we, we saw that a couple years ago, um, you know, Michigan was running a really creative running offense without a lot of outside weapons. And, uh, and I think you're starting to see Tommy Reese show a real creative stroke with the, the personnel that he has. And um, it's really hard to plan against when you don't know what direction the ball is going to go based on statistical tendencies. Bob, the last one for me is when you run into, you know, in your work, people wanting to know what you think of Marcus Freeman 
and his future as a head coach. What do you tell them? And is your answer different than it was earlier in the year? No, my answer is the same as it was. Um, because this team winning is not what convinces me that Marcus Freeman is going to be a great head coach and a great head coach at Notre Dame and a national championship winning coach at Notre Dame. Watching how he responded um, to Marshall and to Stanford, um, I think was really special. You know, I, I played in an era, um, I've watched um, the previous coach at Notre Dame um, coach in an era where um, it was really, it seemed easy for coaches to point at personnel and say that, you know, they needed to step up or we needed to figure out how to do some things. But there was, there was almost like a, the coach had the knowledge and we had to figure out how to get that knowledge to the players, which is still a soft way of blaming the players. Right. When I heard Marcus Freeman talking about what he had to learn and what his learning process was like, to me, it was like I was watching a lumberjack who's still taking time sharpening his ax, right? Like, yes, he's going out there and chopping wood, but he's also putting in that extra effort to be elite, um, which in his mind earlier in the year, maybe he said, like, I can be elite, but I'm not there yet. And to me, the team was following in that mold, right? Like everybody was learning and getting better. And we've seen now we're stacking these wins on top of one another. And it, it defies, I think, logic on paper, right? You know, backup quarterback, we haven't seen really wide receivers come alive. Our offense is predicated on just, you know, just running the ball and throwing to tight ends and bigger bodies. And yet the way we go about our business um, has evolved and we're following and we're taking our lead from him. And, uh, and so I think that's, that's showing, you know, what a strong stoic and, and follow me, you know, tip of the spear type leader can really do not to mention, you know, you lose to Marshall, you lose to Stanford and we're sitting here, you know, after, you know, 10 games, 11 games, we're saying we've still got a top three recruiting class. That is why we, we we bought into him from the very beginning is because the talent required for Notre Dame to win a national championship is looking at Notre Dame right now. And they are still ready to sign um, when, when national signing day happens. And that's because of the way he's handled his business. Uh, I could not be more proud uh, to be a, a fighting Irish football alum, to work at Notre Dame now to even just by, you know, pins and jackets that I wear be affiliated with this program and this coach. And to be on our podcast. <laughs> Dad, to be on twice. Let's go. <laughs> well, all right, Bob, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us and joining us twice, uh, like we mentioned. Um, and to have a happy and healthy Thanksgiving with your family this week. You guys, are you guys heading out to, to California for the game? Tyler is. I will be out there. All right. Well, listen, happy Thanksgiving to you both beginnings of a wonderful holiday season but travel safe out there to good old southern cal and help us come back with a win man as a reminder the inside nd sports podcast is presented by dead soxy maker of the best dress socks you'll ever wear and if you're like me fighting the crowds looking for deals on ho for holiday gifts is something i try to avoid what's the alternative check out what our friends at dead soxy have going this week it's their buy one get one free sale on sock bundles. 
Here's how it works. You buy an eight pair bundle of any of their premium dress socks, casual socks, or no show socks, and you get a second eight pair bundle free. Now the catch is you can only get one, buy one, get one free per purchase, but you will give you a cheat code here. You can just do a separate transaction and get another buy one, get one free bundle if you want. So stock up and save on socks for the whole family. Just use the promo code LUCKY, that's L-U-C-K-Y, at checkout and get yourself a free bundle of your favorite socks. Remember, all of Dead Soxy socks come with the patented technology with a no-slip guarantee made from bamboo for that premium luxury feel. If you want to check out the Navy and Gold collection, which syncs up with your favorite team, click on the Collections tab and select Team Colorways from the drop-down menu. Use promo code LUCKY. That's deadsoxy.com, promo code LUCKY. All right, now it's time for questions. Our question segment is powered by AcrePro Midwest Farm Group. When it comes to land sales, it pays to have experts in your corner. AcrePro Midwest Farm Group are your local farmland specialists. With decades of experience in Indiana agriculture, no one knows the market better. Whether you're doing a 1031 exchange or simply buying and selling farmland, your local AcrePro agent will walk the land with you and ensure the deal is done right. Visit AcrePro.com or call 765-587-3185 and talk to your local land expert today. Again, 765-587-3185. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First one we have is from SJB75 on the Insider Lounge. I watched Caleb Williams torch UCLA with over 500 passing yards. Chip Kelly described Caleb Williams as the best college football quarterback he has ever seen. Is there a more is there more pressure on Al Golden to slow this kid down or on Tommy Reese to keep him off the field as much as possible by controlling the football? with time-consuming drives? Well, I, I guess I probably would change the word pressure to responsibility. And and really, this team has been at its best when it plays complementary football. So they're both working together on game plans that would help limit USC's um, possessions and plays, and yet also um, be effective in Notre Dame scoring enough points to compete with USC, which has usually been a lot. Oregon State somehow got a game into the teens, 17-14 they lost. Um, When we look back at when Notre Dame has been successful against teams that are high-powered offenses, Ohio State, up until the fourth quarter, that was going good, but Notre Dame only ended up with 48 plays. The average is about 65 in a game. And Ohio State ended up with 69. But you look at the other games, you know, North Carolina, 85 to 60 in plays. Uh, BYU, 73 to 46. Syracuse, 75 to 61. Clemson was pretty even, but that was a different game where Notre Dame didn't need to play ball control because Clemson didn't have a high-powered passing attack. You look at the game, you know, a game they lost, Stanford ran 81 plays. UCLA... Uh, allowed USC to have 14 possessions and 81 plays. If those are the numbers that come out of this game, Notre Dame doesn't have a chance. So each side has to do its due diligence to to keep those numbers down. 
Yeah, I, I try to tackle the question from the pressure aspect. And I, I mean, so to me, when I think about pressure, I think it comes from expectations, right? I mean, that's how I sort of interpret it. Um, and so from my perspective, Caleb Williams is supposed to play great. So if he does against Notre Dame, I don't know that that would necessarily be surprising anyone. So that, in my opinion, makes the pressure lower on, on, on Al Golden. He has the more difficult task, certainly, but I think the pressure would be lower on him. The pressure would then be higher on Tommy Reese because this is a USC defense that could be moved around and scored on. And then if Notre Dame doesn't do that, it reflects poorly on Reese and the Irish and really hurts Notre Dame's chances in winning the game. So that's how I would sort of handle the pressure equation. Like, I, I don't know, like, what does that impact those guys in any way? Like, do they feel more pressure based on the opponent on that? I, I don't really know. I mean, they would probably never admit to that, but whether or not they actually do or not, I'm not necessarily certain either. But um, the offense certainly needs to hold up its end of the bargain um, because the, the task is going to be that much harder for Notre Dame's defense. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. How do you think Notre Dame will defend Caleb Williams this weekend? Do you think they will have someone spy the quarterback a large amount of the time? If so, who would you who would be the most likely candidate? Well, that's why I asked the question to Bob Morton, because I wanted a better answer than I had, because <laughs> I was scratching my head. As far as spying, I mean, I always think Marist is probably the best guy to do that. Now, it was interesting because um, Marcus Freeman brought up the concept of spying and not wanting to do that. You know, maybe he's trying to trick USC, but it didn't sound like that was something that he wanted to be part of the game plan when they played Caleb Williams. So I don't know that we're necessarily going to see that. I like Bob Morton's thoughts of um, run blitzes and zone blitzes um, because you're going to have to do something a little bit different. They're not, I think without Travis Dye, they're not as potent in their run game. I mean, uh, Barlow, uh, Austin Jones and Darwin Barlow are decent backs. They're not some of the better backs um that Notre Dame has faced this year. So, I mean, Caleb Williams is so different. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to defer to the answer that I stole from Bob Morton. <laughs> yeah. I, I I'm curious if Marcus Freeman was sort of playing coy with, with his talk about spying Caleb right. Williams. Um, I think he, he may, he may have been talking more sort of like a, from a philosophical aspect and for than a schematic schematic aspect. I think he, he didn't like the idea of just like sitting there and waiting for the quarterback to, to make a decision. And then you sort of react to it as a, as a spying linebacker, at least I guess maybe that was my interpretation of it. And I, and I could be wrong, but so I don't, I don't really know what they would do. I, I think if you're not going to just have someone assigned to Caleb Williams as a spy, I think maybe, maybe playing your linebackers in more zone coverage. So they're not necessarily chasing guys around. They're staying in their areas. So, um, you have guys that will have will be able to sort of recognize Caleb Williams moving and and, and following him um, would be an answer for that. But I'm glad I'm not responsible for doing it because Caleb Williams is some kind of quarterback. He uh, Al Golden mentioned the throw, and I, I think I retweeted it uh, after I saw it on my timeline. I don't know if it was Saturday or Sunday, but he made a throw rolling to his left on the move. And it's just through an absolute laser. It's like, oh my goodness, how do you stop that? Like that shouldn't be possible. But he 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 has uh, quite the skill set. So the, the the challenge will be extremely high for Notre Dame trying to stop him. 
All right, next question is from Mike at KYND Fan. How well does ND's secondary hold up against USC's passing attack? Well, I think having Brandon Joseph back is is a big deal um, because I think he's really going to be helpful in over-the-top coverage on some. The problem with the USC is it didn't show up so much in the UCLA game. Jordan Addison really dominated, but they have a lot of really good receivers. So it's unlike some of the other opponents where it was just Zay Flowers and right. mostly Josh Downs. Um, and e- even though some other guys got loose against Notre Dame, it shouldn't have been that way. Um, the, I think the problematic point is if Kim Hart can't go, and even if he can go, is he going to be fully effective? And so you're really going to be playing with either Jaden Mickey or Clarence Lewis a lot of downs because Notre Dame is going to have to be in nickel all the time. Um, and it's really going to be incumbent on those guys to have a really good game. We know Morrison can play. And yet, I mean, if he's matched up with Addison, that's not going to be an easy day. Um, and Bracey, I mean, Bracey's been really good, but, um, you know, I think that Notre Dame safety play has been really improving. And I think that's maybe one place where you can feel a little bit better than maybe early in the year. And certainly the safety blitzes are better. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the safety, the improved safety play has also sort of gone along with not playing <laughs> the same caliber of quarterbacks as Notre that's Dame true. Uh, did. Like uh, obviously Drake may makes you pay a little bit more than some of the quarterbacks Notre Dame played recently. And I think Caleb Williams has that potential too so i'm very curious to say or curious to see how brandon joseph will play after his absence i think that could be a a real difference maker for Notre Dame. but i don't what how healthy is he truly i don't i I don't know that we can say that with 100 confidence uh, of what what he's going to look like i the cam hart absence would be very concerning to me I, i think there's just so many receivers that can hurt you on on usc's defense that you can't just rely on just benjamin morrison and Tariq bracy you're gonna have to have help from other guys. So whether that's Jaden Mickey or Clarence Lewis stepping up, whether those it's some of those other safeties beyond Brandon Joseph playing well and, and playing some of their better games um, that can make a difference. But I think, um, I think Notre Dame is probably going to give up some big plays. I'm not sure that they can sort of like, sort of avoid that and sort of go, <laughs> you know, I, it would be really hard to imagine like Notre Dame's secondary playing the perfect game against USC's well, Notre Dame's front seven is going to have to help the secondary Absolutely. Bringing pressure. All right. Next question is from Holtz's Heroes Foundation at Holtz Heroes. What was Coach Holtz's record versus Southern Cal? And what was your dad's favorite memory from that decade of dominance? And I I, I don't know uh, that my dad has a ton of Notre Dame USC memories, so I didn't reach out to him. But Eric's about my dad's age, so I figured I could rely on him uh, for some Holtz SC memories as well. Well, um, they were nine one and one by my math in uh, in the time that Lou Holtz was coaching Notre Dame against USC, and that uh, overtime loss in '96 uh, was a bitter pill for a lot of people to swallow. Um, so Notre Dame got pretty comfortable with dominating the series. As far as my own dad in USC, he was an Ohio State fan. So I don't know that other than when they played in the Rose Bowl, he played much 
attention to USC and certainly didn't pay any attention to USC Notre Dame. So I don't have any good memories there. I just sort of, of assumed it was directed at me because of my age, like 96, I was seven. So I don't, I don't have a, a lot of recollections of the Notre Dame USC games from, right. from well, that era. My dad wasn't alive for a lot of those games either. So, right. Um, so um, I don't have a great answer there. I mean, USC did not have great coaching in that era too. Um, and so Lou Holtz benefited from that, but I mean, Lou was a big game coach. When you look at the percentage of ranked teams that were on their schedule, it's the highest in the Lou Holtz era. Lou Holtz was 13 and eight against top five teams. And that's after an 0 and 4 start. Um, you know, he was 13 out of his last 17. So he was up for big games. He could win the little games and he just dominated um, that USC series. And that really helped bring Notre Dame back to being a national power. I still think that, and he out-recruited USC often. I, I still think, you know, when people talk about all Notre Dame's rivals and all these trophies they have and grudges matches they have against people, USC still is the rival, the arch rival. If you stack them on top, that that's the number one thing. And I think that's what you remember from those games. I remember um, Lou Holtz sending, um, oh gosh, it was uh, Ricky Waters. And I think Tony Brooks home and you're like, Oh, how are they going to beat them? And then Notre Dame ends up winning that game. <laughs> uh, so, but there was always great drama. I remember um, interviewing Rodney Pete when he had laryngitis. Um, so <laughs> I, I have some dad memories, I guess, but, but even when Notre Dame was dominating, that game was always meant something. It always meant something to Notre Dame fans. And it always, should I think one of the great things about Lincoln Riley being the coach is it's going to elevate the series even yeah. higher yep. than it what than it has been when Brian Kelly kind of dominated um, USC. Yeah, I think it's good for Notre Dame when USC is good. I, I don't I, certainly Notre Dame had success while USC wasn't good in recent years, um, but I think in the in the grand scheme of things, I, I do think it helps Notre Dame to have that marquee game on the schedule and. And I, I don't because they schedule so far in advance. It's hard to say that that in, impacts how Notre Dame would schedule because you have no. But the games that they're scheduling now, you have no idea what USC is going to be between now and then. But I think you you would think you could be less worried about having to get other marquee games when you have USC on the schedule every year. And uh, what what are your what are your thoughts on calling them Southern Cal? Which I know some some uh, folks, particularly from USC, don't seem to like that moniker. I, I say they are Southern Cal and Al, you know, they, at one point they had in their game notes, don't call a Southern Cal. And, and they had some stupid analogy. I can't even remember what it was, but um, they said it's either Southern California or USC. So Al Lessar, when he was our columnist at the South Bend Tribune would specifically use Southern Cal just to make them mad. But I mean, that's what everybody calls them. What, what, what would be wrong with it? Pitt did the same thing. Pitt said, we don't want to be Pitt anymore. We want to be Pittsburgh. And everybody kept calling them Pitt. And now they got Pitt back on the helmet. So <laughs> they, they lost that battle. Yeah. All right. Uh, next question is from at Jeff ND fan. What is the travel schedule for the team? And will the coaches stay behind to recruit as in the past? I hope you have the answer to the second part of that. I can I answer do. the first part. The, the first part is they are 
Uh, it's similar to what Bob Morton said, what they did. They're going to have a walkthrough Thursday. They're going to have a Thanksgiving lunch, early Thanksgiving dinner with the players' family, or I'm not the players' families, the coaches, coaches' families, and everybody. Then they're going to get on the plane and sleep off the tryptophan and uh, then get out to Los Angeles, have Thursday night, all day Friday, and then all day Saturday before the Saturday night game. And Tyler, thank goodness, has the rest of the answer. Yeah, I, I'm not 100% certain if they'll do anything on Sunday. The The difference now is that it's not a con, it's not a contact period um, right now um, after the after the end of the season. So Notre Dame can't like go in homes following the USC game. And it actually so Sunday is still an evaluation period. So Notre Dame could go watch a kid play a, a basketball or football game if, if they wanted to Um or even on Friday night before the game, which I would imagine they will do is go see some guys locally. Um, but you can't do the same thing that you used to do where you would start hitting in-home visits and start visiting guys um, because it's just this change this year. And I don't, I didn't go back to look to see why they changed it. Um, but starting Monday through Thursday, it's actually a dead period. So the staff can't be visiting kids. And if, even if Notre Dame wanted to host kids on Notre Dame's campus, it can't do that either. So um, there's a bit of a change in the recruiting calendar. So that sort of, changes the narrative with this game and Notre Dame liking to play out in California to end the year so they can recruit out there because that's uh, not the case this year. And I, I assume that's going to be maybe a, a a trend moving forward. I don't, I don't, I didn't take the time to figure out exactly what was the thought process behind that. I think it's probably related to the fact that there's like conference championship games going on that week and maybe would give teams that aren't playing in the conference championship game an unfair advantage. If I were on the coaching staff, I would recommend that everybody fly up to Camas, Washington and go to Tobias Merriweather's dad's house, Dom Merriweather, and have some burnt ends. That's what Brian Kelly did uh, when he got the LSU offer. <laughs> He's yeah, I don't, I don't ends know. at Tobias's house. Yeah, I don't know if uh, like the burnt ends lead to job offers. Maybe that's maybe maybe that's the lucky burnt ends too. I know I don't think Notre Dame fans thought of them in that way, but. Uh, maybe there's something to that. All right. Next question is from uh, LDL Go Irish on the Insider Lounge. Hi, Tyler and Eric. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your families. Thanks to you as and the same to you as well. Uh, I know you will do a more complete roster review after the season. Is the tight end room, even with Michael Mayer leaving a little crowded next year, will Kevin Bauman, if he is not named a starter or co-starter, enter the portal after the spring? I just feel like his career has been injury plagued and he has not had a chance to show what he is capable of yet. Thank you for your thoughts. Well, there's going to be, with, with one newcomer coming in, there will be seven tight ends like there is this year. Um, I I really don't like to speculate on who, somebody that's going to transfer, but I'll say who I think is going to be in the mix for playing time. I think Mitchell Evans will be the odds-on favorite to be groomed as the next Michael Mayer. Um, I think he's tight end one. And then I think you have, a bunch of guys in the mix to be tight end too. And I think um, Kevin Bauman is one of those guys. And I think Eli Reardon coming off of a serious knee injury, holding stays. I think those three are kind of on the next tier. And, you know, Davis Sherwood is his own really kind of a little bit different um, right. role, more of a fullback kind of tight end. I think the guy that's going to be fighting for playing time is Kane Barong. Right. Um, so 
I'm not saying that he would go to the portal, but he's a guy that's really going to have to scrape to get up into that next group and compete with them. Yeah. And he's been coming off an injury as well. I, I wouldn't, I, I have no indication that Kevin Bauman would want to leave. Um, it's not like he hasn't been given opportunities at Notre Dame. He just has had bad injury luck. So I, I mean, maybe he thinks it's cursed here and that's why he needs to leave, but I would be a bit surprised by that. I, and he would be going into his senior season. So you think you'd at least stay to, to graduate if you're at that, once you get that far into your Notre Dame career. So I, I wouldn't anticipate him leaving during the off season, but obviously you never know anything, anything can happen uh, with the transfer portal. But um, I think he'll be in a position to compete for playing time, be, um, the one or two tight end, I would sort of lean towards Mitchell Evans being ahead of him at this point, just based on um, what Mitchell Evans has shown. Um, I didn't think Kevin Bauman was playing great before he got injured this season. Um, and Mitchell Evans hasn't really been a, a part of the passing game. So it'll be interesting to see what, what that looks like for Notre Dame moving forward. If those tight ends can get involved and be bigger parts of the passing game. Um, than they have been obviously they don't necessarily need those guys to be because Michael Mayer is the one doing all that right now but there will be um, certainly a big uh, void of production from that position that will need to be filled next season next question is from at Charles W Wolf with senior snow day behind us can you tell us how many year four and five players have remaining eligibility COVID or traditional red shirts well, let, let me try to make this a little bit easier in that let's take everybody that participated in senior day other than Justin Adam Alola at their word that they're moving on, that they're not going to exercise either a COVID year or a regular year and or, I, I or can, a regular redshirt year. I can list those guys off real quick, too, just okay, as a ahead. refresher. And then I'll do the other guys. That would be Braden Lindsay, Matt Salerno, although Tommy Reese said tonight that he was going to be petitioning Matt Salerno to come back for another year. Uh, Jarrett Patterson, DJ Brown, Michael Vinson, Asita Aquanu, Isaiah Foskey, Brandon Joseph, and Cam Hart. Those were all guys that took part in senior day um, as either fourth-year or fifth-year seniors. Okay. Here's the guys that um, will that have pledged to come back. I mean, they certainly can change their tune. And it's interesting. They all have two years, potentially. They have their redshirt year, and then they have a, um, a COVID year. So it would be Andrew Kostafik, Zeke Carell, uh, Nana Asafa-Mensa, Howard Cross III, J.D. Bertrand, uh, Maris Leofau, uh, Jack Kaiser, and then that's it. That that, those it, are the yeah. those are the guys that are coming back, and they would have potentially two years. Yeah, and I would encourage. Uh, we have a handy dandy scholarship chart on our inside indiesports.com. If you go under the football tab and look for a scholarship chart, it will lay that out for you. That's what I used to come up with the list for this, um, and and Eric nailed all of those as well. So. I was a bit surprised. I guess it didn't really hit me until doing this exercise that Notre Dame has no fourth year seniors who didn't register. That was kind of surprising to me. It just, it just kind of random. I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason to that, but it was, it was just sort of interesting that all those guys that are fourth year seniors um, did actually redshirt at some point. All right. Next question is from at summer John with K Kenny Minchie committing, which quarterback do you not expect to be on the roster next year? Drew Pine, Tyler Buckner, or Steve Angeli? Again, I'm I'm a little bit uncomfortable with 
predicting somebody not to be on the roster. So let me pro- probably play this a little bit different way. Um, you know, I would expect, I don't think it has anything to do with Kenny Minchie being on the roster. Yeah. That's right. That's what I was going to push do- you towards. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think it has to do with having a grad transfer and then, you know, Steve Angeli's pretty young. I don't think that he has expectations that he's going to be the starter next year nor does Kenny Minchie or Ron Paulus Jr. have those expectations. So you're really talking about a, a grad transfer, Tyler Buckner and Drew Pine. And I would think, you know, whoever ended up number three out of that group is probably not going to be super happy about his potential playing time. I think whoever's number two knows that they're one play away from getting in, but whoever's number three, you know, they probably have a decision to make and, it just depends on how much they want the Notre Dame degree. They're not in all all the same spaces, but I think you go through spring practice and you see how that works out. And again, somebody may get hurt in spring practice and, and that eliminates them. And then maybe you don't have anybody that wants to leave the roster. Yeah, I, I don't I don't love speculating about who should or would transfer it just it seems a little bit unfair like we i, I shouldn't be <laughs> like it, it's almost like i'm like making that decision it's like, for yeah, them it's but like it, somebody it, t- t- talking about your job and saying well who should retire or who should get laid off if there's right. layoffs coming well these are the people we think that should get laid off yeah i mean we can talk about like hey this guy is clearly not playing um and i don't see a path to playing time whether or not he wants to stay and stick it out, that's that's not up to us to decide. Um, and so, wh- who's to say whether or not they stick around and, and just see through their career, or they want to go play somewhere else? But I mean, obviously, in, in the quarterback room, Drew Pine is the one that's closest to graduation. So I I don't have any indication that any of those guys would want to get out of here um, prior to graduating. I think that's important to all those guys. So um, if you ha- if you made me pick one, that would be the answer. But um, I, I don't know that uh, that any any of those things have been solved yet. I think everyone will probably be here and competing um, for the starting spot in the spring, and it's going to be all hands on deck for that. And Kenny Minchie plans to enroll early, so he'll be here for that as well. Next question is from Rico Benes at Mike EB95. Which position group outside of quarterback is most in need of a grand tra- grad transfer this offseason? I would say wide receiver. Um, both from the numbers and maybe from an experience standpoint. Again, Tommy Reese kind of casually mentioned, hey, I'd like to get Matt Salerno uh, maybe to think about coming back for a sixth year. I don't, I'm sure that'll appease everyone. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not going to appease anybody on the message boards, that's for sure. But, I mean, even practically, I mean, he's not – if Matt Salerno is one of your frontline guys – I, I don't know that that's where you want want to be. I mean, I, I think he's a good rotation guy, but I don't know that you'd want to count on him to be a starter. And I think Notre Dame needs to go out and get a starter. They, they'll they have a lot of good young talent um, coming in. We think that it's going to be four receivers right now. They have three committed. Um, but to count on those guys as freshmen is asking a lot. Uh, so I think wide receiver, if I was going to go to another position group, uh, you know, especially if Cam Hart follows through and he's gone and and you also lose Tariq Bracey, you may want to go get another cornerback. Um, and there may be some transfer portal guys in that corner room. There's a lot of them that played very little this year that got leapfrogged by two freshmen. 
there's going to be two really good freshmen coming in. So that may be an area where you need some um, some experience. And maybe a, if you could get an elite edge player um, to compete with maybe Jordan Botello, if Justin Adam Malola's not coming back, maybe a defensive end. Those are the ones that I I would think would make some sense. Yeah, that's where the list starts for me. If, if Justin Adam Malola does not come back, to me, Viper defensive end is the number one priority. Now, maybe that's me being too much of a Jordan Botello skeptic, but even if Jordan Botello plays well, I, I don't know that you have a 1B behind him <laughs> necessarily going well, into the next You have season. a lot of interesting possibilities, but they're awfully young, like Josh Burnham and those guys. So so that would be a priority for me. But if Justin Amalillo comes back, then that obviously goes down the list. And then and then the next on the list, in my opinion, is wide receiver. I think you could you could certainly get by without a wide receiver um transfer. I don't think that Notre Dame should. Um because I think that Notre Dame does have some capable starters that I think as long as they continue to progress, you would have a decent wide receiver room and hopefully improved from this past season. But I still would like to see Notre Dame go out and get a receiver and be get someone that could start there. Um, so either of those positions would be fine by me, um, and that would sort of be how I would handicap that uh, that that those odds there. Um, next question is from Bert Leonard at Bert twenty eight thirty four. Let's say the season ends with a win over USC. Which season would be better? Nine and three like that, or nine and three with losses to USC, Clemson, and Ohio State. Nine and three like that. Yeah. Um, and Bob Morton kind of addressed this earlier. Y- you see, you know, if they had lost to the three big ones, you'd say, well, do they have the talent? Do they have the coaching? Do they have, can they ever win these big games? They, I mean, they have a chance to beat two top five teams in one year. I mean, it took Notre Dame over a decade to get two top five wins. Um with uh with Clemson in 2020 and then the one before that was well I can't even remember when it was but it was it was over a 15 year period they only got two top five wins so that shows that you're going in the right direction and uh e- easy answer for me having wins over Clemson and USC yeah I, I agree with you also I think we were talking with Bob about that before we started recording. So if anyone's like Bob Morton didn't say anything about that, that might've been the case. I don't, it's not, I don't think we were betraying Bob's confidence or anything, but just if anyone raised an eyebrow at that, I didn't realize we weren't on the area. (laughs) We had a great conversation before and finally Tyler goes, save it for the podcast. Yeah. 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 He came in firing with all, all kinds of opinions and thoughts. So I was like, hold on, hold on. We're not ready. We talked afterwards. (laughs) Um, But anyways, uh, yeah, I don't think it's very close. I this, the hypothetical nine and three season with, with one, well, maybe not hypothetical. If you go ahead and beat USA this weekend, that would be the preferred version than, than losing to those top programs. It just shows what's possible for this program and it shows signs of growth. Obviously you have to get rid of the inexcusable losses, but I think that is easier to do um, than sort of finding ways to beat those top teams. I, I mean, sort of, as we saw with, with Brian Kelly's tenure as a good coach, but just couldn't get over that hump. And whereas Marcus Freeman was able to already do that against Clemson. And we'll see if he can get another feather in his cap with a win over USC to end the regular season. All right. Next question is from at Henry bead. Your first reaction when you saw the drew pine, Kenny Minchie photo was blank. 
Kenny's tall. <laughs> I was curious if you knew what, what photo he, he was referencing. And I, I assumed that uh, that was what uh, he was sort of getting at. I, I didn't have as, as like, a, I didn't have like a, my, I mean, my re first reaction was like, I should retweet this. It wasn't like, wow, look at the difference between those two and high. Like, I guess that's, because I've stood next to Drew Pine, so I I know how tall or how tall he isn't. Um, obviously, I, I hadn't seen Kenny Minchie in person before, um, so it was reassuring to know that his height is legit. But I think we had heard and we're pretty confident that six two and a half was was the height that he had been measured at um, before I had seen the photo. So um, I don't know exactly what Drew Pine's height is. I, there was someone on Twitter I think responding to this question, like ND Media has not been transparent about Drew Pine's height. I was like. I, I don't know. I think we've been pretty like, maybe we don't, I mean, I'm not writing in my story five foot nine drew pine because I don't know what his actual height is. I could only go off of what they give us. But anytime we talk about it conversationally say, yeah, I don't know that he's five foot 11 and a half, which where he's listed at. So um, I think that's just sort of, uh, I don't know. It was a bit, I, I didn't, I was unaware of this sort of um, perspective that we're like hiding how tall or how tall drew pine isn't. That was kind of a, <laughs> sort of out of left field from my perspective. Doug Flutie was 5'9". He won a Heisman. All right. Next question is from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. If Caleb Williams plays like he did last week while leading SC to a win, he'll likely clinch the Heisman. On another note, isn't it essential for Michael Mayer to have some Mackey moments to have a shot at the Mackey Award? Seems like Brock Bowers of Georgia is nominated for every offensive award. Well, I think... Um, Michael Mayer was nominated for them. He just has been eliminated from like the Bolitnikoff and some of the others. And that's largely, I think the difference is Georgia's number one and Notre Dame is number 15 in the right. college football playoff rankings and players that are comparable that play on teams in the championship hunt tend to get those awards. I think Michael Mayer has had incredible moments when you think us about some of the catches he's gotten some of the blocks that he's made mm -hmm. um, and all the records that he's broken I think you know the one that's realistic is the Mackey award which is for the tight ends um, and that maybe comes down to less of the who's on the championship team maybe when you start splitting hairs if there's a tie it goes to Brock uh, but I think Michael Mayer has a chance to win that and uh it just kind of goes with the territory. When Notre Dame was number one in 2012, Manti Teo won about every award <laughs> that you could win except for the Heisman, and he was second in that. Yeah, which which uh, defensive players never get never get that high. So he was he was really overachieving in terms of the awards. Um, I, I, I'm in agreement. I think some I. I vote for the Bolitnikov, so I, I was aware of I, I, of the which options were out there. There's not a lot of SEC options at receiver. Jalen Hyatt at Tennessee, so I think some of that maybe comes to like, well, who else in the conference is one of the best pass catchers? And sort of Brock pa Brock Bowers um, comes to that. And uh, the Lombardi Award was another thing that uh, Brock Bowers is a was a is a finalist for. Um. And Georgia doesn't necessarily have like a star offensive lineman. So I think he's maybe getting some extra credit in that award, which the Lombardi award is a weird award because it goes to offensive linemen, tight ends, 
defensive linemen and inside linebackers, I think is like, Correct. <laughs> so it's, it's very wide reaching. I, I would be a bit surprised if he won either of those awards. I don't know that he's going to win the Bolitnikoff or uh, win the Lombardi award. So whether or not you're he's fun- already out of the Lombardi. Uh, I thought he was named a finalist, so I, I he, they would have to have awarded the award. So maybe I'm wrong, but um, I, I I don't. Regardless, I I think it comes down to who wins the Mackey Award. I think that's what everyone's interested in. And I I think Mayer has a legit chance at that because that's what he's he's considered a great tight end for playing tight end, and I I think that would have less like it's not as much about like how you impact your offense like when you talk about. Um, some of those other awards. I think he, um, I think he's maybe a semifinalist for the Walter Camp Player of the Year award. Michael Mayer, I think Brock Bowers is as well. Um, and I, but I doubt either of those, either of those guys win it either. So um, we'll see what happens with the Mackey Award. <laughs> uh, Michael Mayer was definitely snubbed from consideration last year, um, and we'll see if he gets his proper due. Certainly, having a big game on the road in a win against USC would help. Um, that's a big spotlight game for for Notre Dame and and his last chance to really impact the voting populace uh, with a big game um, in Los Angeles. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with someone you're sharing a Thanksgiving meal with. Check us out on YouTube if you're not subscribed to us there already. The Inside Indy Sports channel will have our Place Your Bets predictions for NDUSC on Friday. And our Monday Night Live show will be recapping the game as well. And we'll be back for another podcast next week to put a bow on ND's regular season. Until then, stick with InsideNDSports.com for all your pregame and postgame coverage needs.